Amen. First, uh, I should congratulate you. If you're here, you're one of the few that didn't get the virus and is throwing up. Amen. Or you already got it. Already got it. Yeah, moving on. It's not normal for me to eat while I'm teaching. Forgive me for that. I'm working on also not throwing up. So, tonight, we're going to begin a a new book. And uh, it will be Joshua. And... uh, our present plan for the first time in all the years that we've been teaching through the Bible is we are diverting for the first time ever from the actual order of the books, and we are going to work through sections. So we did two from the law, we will now do one from the prophets, then next we will do one from the writings, then we'll go back to the law. And we'll do that until we have finished the Tanakh and then work into the Newer Testament. The idea being that you continue to uh, be challenged with the scope of the word and the contiguous nature of the word. And uh, I am pretty stoked about it. Tonight will be an overview, uh, an introduction, if you will, to the book of Joshua. It will help prepare you for what is coming. And uh, we probably ought to start with prayer. Amen. Amen. So who wants to pray? Get it, Ralph. My God, we thank you, Lord, for gathering us here together, Lord, for giving us one mind, Lord, for putting us in a unified state, Lord. Lord, we ask that you would open up our eyes, Lord, to, to, to the revelation you're about to start upon us, mighty God. Lord, nothing might hinder your plans, Lord, that nothing might get in the way of what you're teaching us here today, mighty God. Lord, that your very words of life would be on the lips of our pastor, Lord, and that our minds would be open to receive everything that you have for us, mighty God. Lord, that you might that you might lift us up into greater understanding of your word, Lord, as you as you greatly increase the knowledge you've poured upon us, mighty God. Lord God, we ask that you would be with our, our brothers and sisters that aren't able to make it tonight because they're sick, mighty God. Lord, that they might be able to receive gleanings off of this revelation that we're going to receive. Mighty God, we thank you for the unity that you've given us, Lord, and for placing us in the body that you've placed us in. Jesus, we give you all the honor, all the glory, and all the praise, Lord. May your name be glorified for this very night, mighty God, in all of our actions and everything that we learn. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, it has uh, been our custom for a long time now for Jennifer to read the first chapter. So uh, we're going to introduce a few different things in this foundation study. When the study is over, if you attended all of the meetings, uh, we'll provide a link for you. It'll end up being uh, over 100 hours of teaching that you will have access to. And the notes that I teach from now, uh, we're going to provide as a PDF for you. That way you can follow along. I'm working hard to make sure this stuff is transmittable uh, and not just something that is entertaining to you, but hopefully it'll have an impact on you and all those that you choose to teach it to. Uh, For that reason, some visual aids and stuff, I'm moving away from the board. I love the board, but uh, I want you to be able to have them, and it's... uh, it's very hard to reproduce something that was drawn on a board five years afterwards. Uh, this will be much more conducive to that. So, uh, Jim, take us to Joshua. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses is aid. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all of these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give to them, to the Israelites. 
I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert of Lebanon and from the great river Euphrates, all the Hittite country to the great sea on the west. No one will be able to stand up against you in all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous, because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore their forefathers to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my Moses, my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous? Do not be terrified, do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. So Joshua ordered the officers of the people, go through the camp and tell the people, get your supplies ready. Three days from now you will cross the Jordan here to go in and take possession of the land the Lord your God is giving you for, for your own. But to the Reubenites, the Gadites, the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the command that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you. The Lord your God is giving you rest and has granted you this land. Your wives, your children, and your livestock may stay in the land that Moses gave you, east of the Jordan. But all of your fighting men, fully armed, must cross over ahead of your brothers. You are to help your brothers until the Lord gives them rest, as they have done for you, until they too have taken possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. After that, you may go back and occupy your own land, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you, east of the Jordan, towards the sunrise. Then they answered Joshua, Whatever you have commanded us, we will do, and wherever you send us, we will go. Just as fully, just as we fully obeyed Moses, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your word and does not obey your words, whatever you may command them will be put to death. Mm. Only be strong and courageous. I think we're going to love this book. Oh, yeah. and <laughs> next week we will go line by line through this chapter. I wanted you to hear a sampling of it uh, this week as we talk about its placement in the Tanakh, why it is placed there, some of the major themes from it, what you might glean in your life from it, eschatological parallels that you need to know about it. It struck me as Jennifer was reading it just now that the people promised to obey Joshua, didn't they? Yes. Mm -hmm. How did they promise to obey him? In what manner? Fully, fully as they did Moses. Did they obey Moses fully? No. <laughs> it's a very scary statement if you yeah. take it literally. If you we will obey you <coughs> exactly as we obey Moses. <laughs> Don't know how to take that. So I'm going to spare you all of the preacher's jokes about the son of a nun because she must have broke her vow. And, uh, and, and let's talk Tanakh for a minute. Um, one of the first questions that I had when I was looking at this is, Joshua, a prophet? Really? I mean, when you think of prophet... Guys like Isaiah come to mind. Ezekiel comes to mind. Some of the shockers when you study the way the Jewish uh, Tanakh is put together, and trust me, they got it right, uh, we didn't, is things like Daniel is in the book of the writings. Um, uh, Joshua is in, in the prophets. Uh, at 
first glance, that may not make sense to you. Before the evening is over, it most certainly will take, make sense to you. I want to show you some ways in which you may view the book of Joshua as not only prophetic, but then hone in on what they mean when they say Naveen, okay? Because to us, Naveen is, is prophets. To us, we see the word prophecy in English as somebody who is prognosticating about the future. That is, that is not the biblical term, prophet. They may do that, but that is, that is not what constitutes a prophet. Uh, we'll come back to that concept. I want to start with some ways in which you might view Joshua uh, and help you see it as prophetic. Let's start with his name. Uh, this is something preachers is pretty well-worn ground, but I want you to know the basis for it. So to start with, uh, somebody read Numbers 13.8. Who's going to do that? <coughs> Justin went to get it. Frank, you'll get the next one. Joshua's name is not Joshua. Never was Joshua. It's not what his mama called him when he was born. It's not how a Jew would say it today. But he did have a name change in the Bible. Numbers 13.8. From the tribe of Ephraim, Hosea, son of Nun. <coughs> oh, yeah, Hosea is uh, the, the Spanish brother of, of the Hebrew man. <laughs> Hosea. Uh, you can see this spelled out in, uh, in Hebrew, uh, Strong's number 1954, and you can see it begins with a, a, a hey, not a yod. And this word, as it's defined right there, clearly means deliverance or salvation. Uh, he was born with the name salvation or deliverance. That is not how he goes down in history. And... That's an interesting thing. You are born with a calling. And a man that is born with a calling to, to teach might become a secular teacher, but that may not have been what God always intended. I want to tell you, I think Joshua would have been some sort of deliverer, whether he followed the Lord or not. But that was never the goal. God gives you a raw talent. He gives you a, a base personality. He gives you something that he then wants to build upon. And uh, he remakes you in his image, but at the same time, he starts with something he made originally. So what was Joshua's name to start with? Hoshea. Older translations leave off the H because it's, it's barely pronounced uh, in Hebrew. Uh, moving on from there, uh, Frank, you read Numbers 13, 16. Numbers 13, 16. These are the names of the men Moses sent to explore the land. Moses gave Hoshea, son of Nun, the name Joshua. <laughs> His name was Hoshea, and Moses gave him the name Yehoshua. Can y'all see that transliterated at the bottom of your screen? Strong's number 3091. Can you see in Hebrew the letter that is added? It looks a little bit like an apostrophe. It's a yod. Uh, that yod represents God's name. It's why so uh, the word Yahweh begins with Yad He Vav He. And God's name was added to Hoshea. When God's name takes over your name, it gives you a new identity. That's pretty cool, don't you think? Yeah. He was born a deliverer, but he becomes God's salvation, Yahweh's salvation. 
Okay. Uh, Alex, read Nehemiah 8.17. By the way, so that we don't lose the larger scope, we're talking about his name and the book being included among the prophets. Well, can you already see at least one biblical figure that he may be uh, foreshadowing? Yeah. Yeah, that's not too difficult to believe, uh, is it? Okay. Alex, you got it? Nehemiah 8.17. The whole company that had returned from exile built temporary shelters and lived in them. From the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated like this. Nehemiah is recounting the history of Israel, and he refers to Joshua. And when he when he does in Hebrew, the spelling is a little bit abbreviated. The word um, had several forms. And do you see strong number thirty four forty two? How would you say it? Yeshua, the Hebrew name for Jesus. You've probably heard people say in the past while preaching that the word Joshua and the word Jesus are the same word in the original language. What I'm doing is I'm demonstrating that for you. He was born Hoshea. He was called by Moses Yehoshua. And he goes down in history as Yeshua. Uh, This is the exact Hebrew spelling of the name Jesus. All three of these, when transliterated into Greek, when you take a Hebrew word and you translate it to Greek, become the word Jesus, or Jesus. Okay? And uh, in the Newer Testament, they had to work by context to determine whether we were talking about Joshua or Jesus, because they have the same Hebrew name. So now that you know what Joshua's name actually means, what does the name Jesus actually mean? Yahweh's salvation. Okay? Uh, you know what's interesting? Joshua was a deliverer that was made to be God's deliverer. Jesus was God's deliverer from birth. Okay? One had to have God's name added to him. The other was born that way. All right? Now, we haven't gotten to verse 1 yet. Uh, are you already seeing reasons to study the book of Joshua? Uh, in other countries, by the way, The name Joshua sounds much, much more like these Hebrew names. If you see my friends in Romania, one of the little boys running around, they call it Yoshua. And uh, that's that's Joshua. The J becomes a Y. Uh, On our pulpit, Strong's number 3442 is there with the words HaMashiach. Yeshua HaMashiach. Jesus the Messiah. But this is also how you say the name Joshua. Okay? Um, let's take down that display for just a second. I want to walk you through um, some other ideas here. You ready for your notes? One way that Joshua is included in the Naveen is obviously you can see his name uh, is uh, the same as Jesus and he's foreshadowing him. But certainly the Jews, (laughs) that's not why they included it in the, the prophets. We will get to that. We're not there yet. I'm giving you Christian reasons. The second is the content of the book is similar to the book Revelation. 
I actually think that the best key to understanding Revelation and all the Bible is to understand Exodus and Joshua. I think if you get those two books down in your soul, if you get very familiar with their language, very familiar with their typology, when you read the book of Revelation, you feel like you're reading a repetition of something that's already occurred. And it's because it has. The reason that people have such outlandish, uh, non-biblical theories about the book of Revelation is they have not understood the base from which it is written. And the base from which it is written is, of course, the Tanakh. So let's take one just for fun. Um, you can actually put these back up. There's no reason not to. Uh, in the book of Joshua, how many spies did we send out? Twelve. That's kind of funny, isn't it? Because they didn't send out twelve. Everybody in the room just said that, but they didn't. In Joshua, they sent out two spies. When did they send out twelve? Under Moses in the uh, book of Numbers. And of the twelve, right... How many were faithful? Two. Two. So, think about this in larger Israeli history. There were 12 tribes. How many tribes are still existent within Israel today? Not Samaritans, not lost tribes. Two. Two. The ten were scattered. Okay. The point here is that you see something like a fractal. Twelve went out and they did not experience success. But there was a faithful remnant, too. In the book of Joshua, two go out, and they're 100% successful. Do you see a message starting there? Okay. I'm just going to infer some things. That's what an introduction is. We're going to spend weeks, months. I don't know how long it'll take us to get through Joshua, but it'll be good. Now, that is not the, um, the thing that I'm actually hoping to imply first, though. There are two witnesses that go out in the book of, of Joshua. We call them spies. What did they spy on? Y'all talk to me. The land. Uh-huh. When we say spy, it'd be like uh, they're going to look for weaknesses, right? We go see what kind of armaments they have so we could get our battle plan together. Did Joshua actually have a battle plan? Did he go examine their weapons so that he would know what kind of weapons to use? They're not... They're not actually spies in the sense that you would think of as spies. They're not doing uh, surveillance for the purpose of finding a weakness and developing a military strategy. Joshua doesn't use a military strategy. What does he do? He hears from God, and he goes and does what God says, which is walk around the city. Okay. So why did the spies go out then? They went out to come back and witness that what God said about this land is true about this land. That might make you think of Revelation 11 and two special witnesses that are testifying on the earth. What God has said is true. It's happening now and we will show you the fruit from that. Second one. Both the book of Revelation and Joshua have a military campaign that is based on seven trumpets. Do you think that's a coincidence? (coughs) You'll find out in Joshua there's many more than one series of seven. (coughs) But seven bowls, seven trumpets, seven lampstands, I've done this with you in the book of Revelation. There are heptatic structures everywhere. But when the seventh trumpet blows in the book of Revelation, we're bringing things to a completion. When Joshua's seventh trumpet blows, Jericho falls. 
When Jericho falls, every single Israelite goes up and takes over. Not one failed to go up and take over. It was the complete and utter falling of Jericho. It was not done by the arm of man. It was done by the voice of God. Do you see a parallel between that and Revelation? Yes. You should. Uh, we, we will cover those as we get to them in the chapter. Both Jesus and Joshua are commanders of God's army <coughs> fighting against antichrist-like kings. Wait till we get to Adonai Zedek in Joshua 10. He's a type of antichrist. He has a coalition that he's leading against God's people. Uh, the people even, when he defeats them, do you remember in Joshua 10 where they go? They hide in caves. Have you ever read the book of Revelation and find that men are hiding in caves for fear of the Lamb? Yeah. Okay. The, the, uh, the number of parallels, really there is no ending to. I just happen to have picked seven. <coughs> in both books, the sun, the moon, and the stars are affected. There, there are such extraordinary events happening that the stellar realm is obeying a man on earth. That happens in the book of Revelation. And it happens also in the book of Joshua. Let's go through this math together. Most people believe that the events of the book of Revelation are a special seven-year time period. Many people who have studied the book of Joshua also believe it's a seven-year time period, although not all in either case do. So... Um, who wants to read? Uh, Ibrahim, you take Joshua 14.7. Cody, you take Joshua 14.10. Uh, Spencer, you take Deuteronomy 2, 14-18. And Jennifer, you read Deuteronomy 2, uh, verse 24. chapter of Joshua says hey the last time that we got to this land and we failed uh, I was 40 years old he was one of two spies who brought back an honest report that was the moment that the nation rebelled and God made them a promise and he says he's 40 uh, Cody read the next one Joshua 14 10. now then just as the Lord promised he had kept me alive for 45 years since the time he said this to Moses, while Israel moved about in the desert. So here I am today, 85 years old. On the day that Caleb is speaking in Joshua 14, he is now 85 years old. 45 years have passed, right? Many Bible commentaries then go, 45 years have passed. How long were they in the desert? 40 years. 40 years. And so they say, hey, this is five years into the conquest. But they're missing something. Israel did not go straight from Egypt and into the promised land. They, they went to a mountain. They stayed at that, they took them two months to reach the mountain. They stayed at the mountain about a year. And it took them ten months to travel uh, to the edge of the land. Right? That eats up two whole years. Now let's look at Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 
Deuteronomy 2, 14 through 18. And the time from our leaving Kadesh Barnea until we crossed the brook Zered was 38 years, until the entire generation, that is, the men of war, had perished from the camp as the Lord had sworn to them. Do you remember that God was dissatisfied with the people because they would not go in the land? It was 38 years from the time that they brought back the bad report till the last of their bodies dropped in the desert. When you take the 45 years of Caleb's life that he says, you subtract the 38 years that it took the people to die in the desert, you know what we have? A differential of seven. That means that from the time that God said to Caleb, you will enter the land because you had a different spirit, to the time that um, he's saying this uh, in Joshua 14 is 45 years, and when you subtract the years it took the people to die before they could begin the conquest, we end up with exactly seven years from the time they begin the conquest till Caleb gets his inheritance. Now, why would that be interesting? Because God's fascinated with sevens, and most biblical scholars believe that the events of the book of Revelation are occurring in a special week of years. Have you heard that from Daniel as well? So the military campaign is not only based on sevens, it takes seven years to complete as well. Interesting. How many days in a week were there? Seven. And after six days, what did you do? Rest. How many days did you march around Jericho? Seven. And on the seventh day, what did you do? Shout. Shout, and, and, and you got it. Seven was a number of completion. It was a number of perfection. They complete the conquest of the land in seven years. Okay? I wanted to show you this map. Gives you an idea where they were and how they... Uh, oh, there was one more verse from Deuteronomy. Jennifer. Deuteronomy 2.24 Set out now and cross the Arnon Gorge. See, I have given into you into your hands Shinon, the Amorite king of Heshbon and his country. Begin to take possession of it and engage him in battle. This is the beginning of the military campaign. It occurs when he says it's been 38 years and the first battle they're fighting is... At Heshbon. Do you see Heshbon's relationship to Jericho? Mm -hmm. They have to come to the Jordan and cross it to face Jericho. This helps us place the story. It helps us know in the timeline where we're at. From the time they got to Heshbon to the time that Caleb is saying, Hey, I've got my inheritance. It's seven years. Okay? Y'all follow that? Yes. Okay. Isn't it interesting the direction from which they approach? It's always the east. Come back to that. Um, under close examination, the book of Joshua seems to be a precursor to the book of Revelation. Another Yehoshua, as commander-in-chief, will dispossess the planet Earth of its usurpers, first sending two witnesses, then with a series of judgment of sevens, finally defeating the kings with signs in the sun and the moon, while the kings of the earth hide in their caves. Do you get the parallel now? Yes. In that sense, could you see Joshua as prophetic? Yeah, he's laying down a blueprint from which you would understand the only New Testament book of prophecy. Now, 
How many people do you know that when they get born again, they want to know what's going to happen, so they turn to the book of Revelation, and they don't understand it, so they go buy a commentary? If that commentary is not based on the blueprints that are already laid down in Exodus and Joshua, you're studying from the wrong source. Yeah. Um, I thought that was useful. Go ahead and kill the overhead for a minute. No, don't do that. <laughs> I keep finding better things. Let's talk purpose of the Tanakh to see why Jews would include this book uh, as a book of prophecy. Okay? So I gave you two Christian reasons. I'm going to give you one Jewish reason. We're going to say there are three and yet one and call it a day. Okay? No, we're not. Um, the purpose of the ordering of the Tanakh has to do with how mankind is put together. In Luke 24, 44, he said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. So we're reading about Yehoshua, but we're also reading about Yeshua, Jesus, right? And... He can be found in all three areas of the Bible. And this is Jesus' endorsement of the law, the prophets, and the writings, and that ordering. Because he wouldn't refer to it this way if something there was not chemical. He would not refer to it this way if he thought it should be in a different order. The fact that this is resurrected Jesus speaking with man off of the road to Emmaus is an extraordinary endorsement of the Jewish Tanakh, wouldn't you say? Yes. Okay. When we're looking at these three things, of course in Hebrew, they're called the Torah, the Navim, and the Ketuvim. Each has a different purpose. The law, Bereshit, Shemot, Veikra, Bemidbar, and Devarim, the five books of Moses, are followed by the prophets and the writings. Here are the prophets, for those of you that want to take notes or a picture. Uh, along with their corresponding Hebrew names, by the way, First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings are all one scroll. The twelve minor prophets are not minor; they're called minor because they're included in the same scroll, the Megalot, and uh, they they're short and they fit on one scroll. Is is what? Here are the writings. Here are their topics. So when you are looking at the Tanakh, the first part, the five books of Moses, the Torah, have to do with the founding of Israel. Do you remember in Exodus that we have a nation born out of Egypt? We see how the nation was founded. In Genesis, we see the Holy Family born and, and how it's promised to turn into a nation. In Exodus, we see them delivered from slavery. Um, the, the Torah is about the founding of Israel. The Nevim cover the time period in history from the promised land and into captivity, and they have a unified theme. So here's what I mean by that. Where does the book of Joshua take place? In the promised land. Because it takes place in the promised land, it must be in the prophets, according to their thought. 
Does that make sense? Yeah. The Ketuvim has to do with how to live a faithful life in whatever historical context you're in. Take Daniel as an example. You see Daniel as prophetic. They see Daniel as a writing. You know why? It doesn't take place in the land. It takes place in the diaspora or captivity. And it shows you how a faithful Jew lives under the consequences of sin. Okay? Let's get to the meat of the matter. In Deuteronomy 6, starting in verse 4, Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. When we say one, what word is that in Hebrew? Echad. Does it mean singular is in the numeral one? Or it implies a plural unity. As the elders pointed out in a Bible study a long time ago, God said, let us make man in our image. Do you hear the us and the our? How many men did he make? One. One. So God is plural and yet is also singular. The word Elohim in Hebrew that is often used to refer to God has a plural ending. The I am is plural. But it has a plural ending and always gets a singular verb. That's, um, that's peculiar. It is pointing to something about the nature of God. Now, he begins by saying, Hear, O Israel, Shemaiah Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now he's going to tell you how you can be one. Now, what I mean by that is you might say, well, of course I'm one. Except if you get married, two become one. And you're two and yet one. How are you more than one while you're not married, you're just sitting right here as a human being? Well, you have a spirit that is eternal. You have a body that will rot, right? You have something else that is a bridge between those two things, your mind, your will, your emotions, the the soul or nefesh of, of a person. Uh, sometimes you can feel these at war with each other. Flesh ever wanted to do something that your spirit knew was wrong and your soul was busy trying to justify it? You know? um, I am exerting all of my willpower and asking for heavenly help so that my flesh does not Ralph. <laughs> Have you ever been in a situation, though, where no amount of force could keep you from doing what your flesh said to do? Diarrhea, vomit, they're both like that. Sometimes tears, you know? Now, that is also true. my, My point is, you are one person, and yet you have three parts. I'm not teaching Trinity, Triunity here. I'm simply saying that God is never conflicted within himself. He is always in total agreement with himself. Is that true of you? No. No. You're of two opinions about things all of the time. On the one hand, I'm going to do this. On the other hand, I'm going to do that. We will fully obey, just as we did Moses. (laughs) 
So now in verse 5, it is a promise and a command. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Let's look at this um, in several facets. The first is, some see this and they go, oh, I have to love the Lord with these three things. Others see it as a prescription. He's saying you will love the Lord your God. The Hebrew is ambiguous on this point. I believe the New American Standard says you shall love the Lord your God. Not you'll try to, but you will. He's telling them how to both love the Lord and also be one holistic, totally unified human being. Right? And it comes from letting that love of the Lord fill your heart, your soul, and your strength or your flesh. Now, if you are three parts, and all three parts have to be perfectly unified on the same page, totally in love with the Lord, does it surprise you then that he gives you three parts of the Bible, and each part of the Bible addresses a part of you? So here's where that goes. When you are looking at the Tanakh, the Jews teach, I teach, and the Scripture teaches that the law inclines your heart. It's meant to adjust your heart. You can see that in Deuteronomy 5.29. When God gives the law, a couple verses later, same chapter, He exclaims, an emotional verbalization. I mean, does anybody know what the word oh means? It has no meaning. It's an expression of emotion. He says, oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and keep all my commands always so that I might beat the crap out of them, grind them into it, hang a heavy weight around their neck, and make those bad Jews want Jesus. No, it's not what it says. Be inclined to fear me and keep all my commands always so that it might go well with them and their children forever. The first step in becoming Ehad personally is to get your heart to mirror God's heart and his heart is displayed in his commands. Okay? So the very first part of the Bible addresses both the formation of the nation but also your formation as a human being. And what's the most important thing to get right first? Your heart. For some of you, this is review. For some of you, it is uh, brand new. For all of you, it's worth contemplating. You've not heard this enough, I promise. You don't hear it being echoed from pulpits everywhere. You actually hear the laws being set against faith and against the gospel because ignorant men have been misunderstanding Paul's writings since Peter said they would do it. Um, Now, moving to the second section, the Nevim, the section we're in tonight. The Nevim has to do with your soul. Isaiah 38 Verse 15 says this, But what can I say? He has spoken to me, and he himself has done this. I will walk humbly all my years because of the anguish of my soul. 
What did the word of God cause in his soul? Anguish. Anguish. Because the prophets have to do with the time period from being in the land to going into captivity. What that meant is you're in the land, but God said, if you do these things, you will go into captivity. He's in anguish in his soul because what does he know is going to happen? He's going to go into captivity. Prophets were to warn you of the consequence of sin. I want to give you a few more from the prophets on that subject. Um, Steve, Elder Steve, would you take 2 Kings 17 and verse 13? Battlefield Aisha, you take 1 Kings 1, 12. Bojadar, you take 1 Samuel 8, 9. Look, when our elders are reading, that, if that didn't get... I saw two elders walk up at once and I began to repent immediately. The third elder walked up and I was right with God. <laughs> warning, warning, no warning. Second Kings 17, 13. The Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and seers, turn from your evil ways, observe my commands and decrees in accordance with the entire law that I commanded your ancestors to obey, and that I have that I delivered to you through my servants the prophets. See, the prophets were aimed at warning you. They they engage your mind, will, and emotions. They, this is why they acted out things. Ezekiel walks around naked, shaves his head with a sword, cooks his food. Mm -hmm. uh, you can figure out how he cooked his food. Um, they were trying with all of their being, as led by God's Spirit, to warn the human soul of the consequence of sin. So while the law was there to display God's righteous character and say, look, this is how you pattern your heart. This is how you form your nation and your heart. The prophets were there to say, this is why you don't want to be inclined in the wrong way. This is what will happen to you if you do. This is what that looks like. All this will come into play in the book of Joshua in the same way that the book of Revelation stands as a warning right now for what the world is headed for, but they ignore it. Okay, how about 1 Kings one twelve? Now then, let me advise you how you can save your own life and the life of your own Solomon. Of your son Solomon, sorry. So, this is a prophet speaking to uh, Miss Bathsheba. And he is warning her on how to save life, hers and her sons. The point is, is that the prophets are always aimed at the same thing. We want you to get right with God so that you'll experience good life. We want you to be warned so that you can live long in the land. If you don't, this is what's happening. Okay? Now, I'm trying to make that impression on you now because when you read Joshua, you're like, okay, they go in, they beat these people up, they... they they kill all of the inhabitants, and then they get the land. Yes, but you're missing something. The inhabitants of the land were exceedingly sinful and were warned 400 years in advance. And this book stands as a testimony that says God doesn't forget. He has issued a proclamation. He's put the world on notice, and he will return with a military commander like Joshua, and he will rid the earth of evil. So in that sense, it is prophetic as all get out. Okay, First uh, Samuel eight nine. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly, and let them know what the king 
who will reign over them will do. Yeah. So this is Samuel speaking about the rise of the kings in Israel. My point is, is that 1 Kings, 2 Kings, Samuel, Joshua, they all have similar components. They're warning the soul. Amen? Amen. Amen. So Joshua is many things, but it warns the soul like the other prophets. Uh, we need to finish talking about the Tanakh. Uh, we'll come back to that idea. You may write in your notes as something to come back to. There is a day of reckoning for sin, just like in the book of Revelation, and Joshua deals with that. I want to finish one last slide about the Tanakh so that I don't leave you with a two-thirds understanding. If the Torah inclines the heart and the Nevim address your soul, the Ketuvim is how you physically carry things out. Okay? How you walk faithfully in your historical context. It's crazy that uh, I was born again many, many, many years before the most basic structure of the Bible made any sense to me. And if we change all of their names, if we reorder all of their books, is it any wonder that we're a little confused? Uh, I've wrote uh, a very small book that probably nobody's hardly read. But I know that if you take those chapters and you mix them up, uh, it, it, it won't convey the same thought. If you were a young Jewish boy, a uh, girl, you would grow up starting with Torah, moving to the Nevi'im, and then going to the Ketuvim. In other words, from birth, you would begin having your heart worked on, and then your reasoning center, and then your actions. Doesn't that make perfect sense? Yes. If you reverse, I, I, I don't want to spend too much time on that, but if you reverse the order, if you just work on their actions, but you've not addressed the reasoning center or their heart, you're creating slaves, not sons. Right? If you just address their soul and you never address their actions or their heart, you're trying to create some kind of automaton, some robot. Or, worse yet, you know, a pseudo-philosopher of some kind. You, you know, If you just address the heart and you never address anything else, I don't think you could really address the heart. <laughs> you know, it's deceptive like that. It takes the other parts of the body to gang up on it. Um, what was that, sir? said you'd make Baptist. <laughs> uh, forgive him. He's his mother's son. <laughs> Actually, he and I are in perfect agreement on that point, although I don't always say it on tape. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Joshua himself, Okay. We're going to come back to why it's in the prophets, but now I just want to give you some insight about Joshua himself. Are y'all learning anything? Yes. 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 Okay. Um, there are seven of them. So, joy. Take First Chronicles 7, 20 through 27. Son, Tahath his son, Elida his son, Tahath his son, 
Zabad his son, and Shaphelah his son. Ezer and Eliad were killed by the native-born men of Gath when they went down to seize their livestock. Their father Ephraim mourned for them many days, and his relatives came to comfort him. Then he lay with his wife again, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. He named him Beriah, because there had been misfortune in his family. His daughter was Shira, who built lower and upper Beth Haran, as well as Uzen Shira. Rephah was his son, Resheth his son, Tela his son, Tahan his son, Laden his son, Amihud his son, Alishama his son, Nun his son, and Joshua his son. So from Abraham we go to Isaac. From Isaac we go to Jacob. <coughs> From Jacob's twelve we go to Joseph. From Joseph's two we go to Ephraim. And then what was Joshua's father's name? None. I'm skipping generations here, obviously. And then you saw Joshua. You say, Eric, that's nothing new, man. Why do we have to go through all that? I, I know he's Joshua, son of Nun. Did you hear anybody else as a son of Nun? No. What does that mean about, oh, look carefully. There are no other sons of Nun. He's the only son of Nun. Another way to say that, he's the second born? Third? First and only. What does that tell you about Joshua? Joshua, when you're thinking about who Joshua is, the very first thing that you have to know is he had to be saved by the Passover itself. If his father had not heard and obeyed and covered the door in the blood of the Lamb, then Joshua would have been struck dead with all of the others. He wasn't struck dead because he was covered in the blood of the Lamb. I hope the first thing people know about you is that you're covered in the blood of the Lamb. It's the first thing I wanted you to know about Joshua. He was saved the same way you and I are. Second thing you should know about Joshua. Is that all right? I mean, y'all. Okay. Uh, So, Chris, take Numbers 27, 15 through 20. Um, Natalie, you take Deuteronomy 34, 9. Sam, take Romans 10, 4. Well, that's an awkward pairing of scriptures, isn't it? So Joshua was a firstborn son of Nun, covered in the blood of the Lamb. Numbers 27, 15 through 20. Yeah. Moses said to the Lord, May the Lord, the God of the spirits of all mankind, appoint a man over this community to go out and come in before them, one who will lead them out and bring them in, so the Lord's people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, son of Nun, a man in whom the spirit, and lay your hand on him. Have him stand before Eleazar, the priest, and the entire assembly, and commission him in your presence. Give him some of your authority so the whole Israel community will obey him. Man, um, there's so many things to say about this. 
Uh, I'm going to combine a few for number two because um, Joshua's got enough to say about him that I can do it. First thing you learn about him, he is saved by the blood. The second thing that you learn about him is that he is uh, a man of appointment who is said to have the spirit, right? Uh, we're still going to stay on point two while Charlie re- or whoever had Deuteronomy 34, 9. Did I give that to somebody? Sam had it. Nope, not Natalie. Sam. Natalie. Now Joshua, son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his, his hands on him. So the Israelites listened to him and did what the Lord had commanded Moses. First is he's saved by the blood. The second is because he was a man appointed by God, he had to be filled with the Spirit of God. Joshua was saved by the blood and filled with the Spirit. Joshua was saved and baptized in the Holy Ghost. But it gets even better than that. I'm going to confess I crammed quite a few into number two. Did you hear... Did you hear when Chris was reading Numbers 27 how it began? Moses, the man of God, prayed. Joshua is a spirit-filled answer to Moses' prayer. You remember what Moses' prayer was? Read it again, Chris. Moses said to the Lord, May the Lord, the God of the spirits of all mankind, appoint a man over this community did God answer the prayer? Yes. yes. So Joshua is a spirit-filled answer to Moses' prayer. You could say that Joshua was everything that Moses' life was pointing at achieving. The inheritance that Moses was told he would bring the people into the land for, the very thing that God called him to do, who actually did it? So Moses' life was just building up to the appearance of Joshua. Does that make you hate Moses? Does that make you look bad at Moses? Look down on Moses? You can't have a Joshua without Moses. That's interesting. Who had Romans 10.4? Romans 10.4. Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Man, I've heard this. I've been beat up by it. I was presented it in Bible difficulties. Christ is the end of the law. And then you hear sermon after sermon about now that Jesus has come, the law is defunct, it's bad, it's blah, 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 blah. Uh, A friend was reading Pilgrim's Progress the other day, which I love. And he noticed uh, his second or third time through. Moses is presented terribly in it. It was the best-selling work in the English language for 350 years, and Moses is an old man who chases you down and beats you with a stick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's based on the same kind of misunderstanding. Read, read this again. Mm-hmm. Listen to how bad this sounds. Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law. Let's deal with that and then relate it to our second point about a spirit-filled answer to the prayer. Okay? The end there is Strong's number 5056. It's talos. It means to set out for a definite point or goal properly. The point aimed at as the limit by implication. Another way to say it is 
the fullness of, the full extent of. Now, if you consider that, Christ is the definite point or the goal at which the law was aiming, how is that any different than Moses' life aiming at producing Joshua? Because Joshua took the people into the land, didn't invalidate everything Moses did, it actually completed it, fulfilled it. So when you were thinking about the role of Jesus Christ, he doesn't invalidate, abrogate, or, or cause the law to be defunct. He actually completes the very thing that it was aimed at, a unified heart, soul, and body, totally in love with the Lord. This is why we say it's the walking will of God. Okay? Now, I want to show you another way in which this is translated. The complete Jewish Bible says it like this. For the goal at which Torah aims is Messiah. Doesn't that make much better sense than saying he's the end of the Torah? The same people who translated in the 1984 NIV, Christ is the end of the law, in 2011 had a change of heart. In 2011, they translated the same passage, Christ is the culmination of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. That's not because they became liberal in 2011. It's because they recognized the horrible mistake they made, and they fixed it. Now, they also made horrible mistakes in 2011. I'm not suggesting they didn't. I'm simply saying that one way for you to understand Moses and uh, Joshua is also the same as Moses and Jesus. One brought to total completion the life's work of the other. Jesus is to the law as Joshua is to Moses. And you've heard this story preached so many times the wrong way. Moses just couldn't bring them into the promised land because the law could never do it. So Joshua brought them in. That so does disservice to the law. The problem was not the law. The problem was the people. Okay? The law was weakened by their sinful nature. It was not a fault of the law. So the law is good, holy, spiritual, and right. The problem was our sinful nature. We needed a better man. What kind of man? One who was covered in the blood of the Lamb and spirit-filled man of appointment. Amen? Amen. That spirit actually fills you so that you can keep the righteous requirements of the law. Yeah, that's better than you're acting like it is, but it's okay. It's okay. No, I leave it up there, young right. I mean, uh, I missed y'all. I like teaching these classes as much as I like missions or anything else. Uh, my favorite moments in, in, in life are getting a revelation like that one and then being able to share it. You know, that's... Uh, I have been studying this this book now for 24 years and it never occurred to me the way in which Moses and Joshua actually reflect the law in Jesus. Yes. And I, I knew about the name, I knew about those things, and today I went, my God, Moses prayed for this. The law begs for Christ to appear. Yes. He's the example of everything that the law was, was aiming at. Yes. Okay, so... Um, that takes us to the third one. Uh, just, it'd be harder for you to find, so I, I found a few of these. 
Jewish tradition says that Joshua wrote Deuteronomy 34, 4 through 12. Uh, the point here is that the last eight verses of Deuteronomy were written by Joshua. So let's read those last eight verses and you will notice some things about it. Um, who's going to read it? I got it. Okay. You're going to start in verse 4. Verse 4, 34, 4. Uh-huh. There's 12 verses in it, and so if we back up 8, you're at 4. Then the Lord said to him, This is the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when, his, when I said... I will give it to your descendants. I will let you see it with your eyes, but you will not cross over into it. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in Moab, as the Lord had said. He buried him in Moab, in the valley opposite Beth Deor. But to this day, no one knows where his grave is. Moses was 120 years old when he died, yet his eyes were not weak. Have you ever wondered, by the way, if Moses wrote Deuteronomy, how he writes about his own death? Okay. The answer is that there's somebody who was very close to Joshua. And Joshua knew these details, and he wrote it. Now, the reason I'm pointing this out is I want you to hear the way in which Joshua (laughs) speaks about Moses. He wants you to know when he died, he was still full of vigor and strength. Now, keep going. In other words, he finished well. He doesn't describe him as a failure. When he died, yet his eyes were not weak, nor his strength gone. The Israelites grieved for Moses in the plains of Moab thirty days, until the time of weeping and mourning was over. Now Joshua, son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom, because Moses had laid his hands on him. Now why did Joshua say that he had the spirit and wisdom? Because of Moses. Do you hear the way in which the student is honoring of the teacher? But more importantly, do you hear the way in which if our shadow and type holds true, Jesus would speak of the law? See, he was instructed. He is the living, breathing, walking law. Does that make sense? He's the Word of God. So he would not speak disparagingly about it. It is what he is. Now, in the case with men, everything that Joshua was was because Moses helped him become that. Keep going. So the Israelites listened to him and did what the Lord had commanded Moses. Since then, No prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. (laughs) Let me pause here for a second. Joshua is the first book of the prophets. And you hear what he's saying? There was never, not before and not since, anyone like my teacher. (laughs) How can he not love the guy? I mean... He does not present Moses as a failure who was unable to complete the task. He presents Moses as the ladder that he climbed to be able to do the things that he did. In other words, you see a healthy relationship between uh, (coughs) father and son in faith. Keep going. Who did all those miraculous signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his officials, and to his whole land. For no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. (laughs) I bet if you talk to Moses, Moses would have spoken the same way about Joshua. He says many great things about him, but Moses didn't live to see the day 
that Joshua commanded the sun to stop still in the sky. Because Moses never did that. Yeah, I mean, you see what I'm saying? They had that kind of admiration for each other because they were of the same spirit. Jesus Christ and the law are of the same spirit. There's no conflict between the older and the newer testament. This is the making of small men. Okay? The reality is there are significant differences in these men's function and they complemented each other totally. That's good. Okay? Uh, I, I was blessed to have read that today. I, I hope it blessed you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, last verses of uh, Deuteronomy by uh, Joshua. The fourth uh, thing I want you to know about the man. Um, Who will read? Paul. Take uh, Numbers 13, 8, and um, uh, Gabe Sutherland. Take John 1, 42, and we'll make yourself a note. We won't read it. John 6, 68. <coughs> okay, Numbers 13, 8. Write on number 4 in your notes. Ha, <coughs> come. How come? How come? Numbers 13, 8. From the tribe of Ephraim, Hoshea, son of Nun. Keep going. From the tribe of Benjamin. Nope, sorry. Uh, Numbers 13, 8 is his original name. Skip down to the bottom. It's in parentheses. (coughs) He says, but Moses gave him the name. Moses gave Hoshea, son of Nun, the name of uh, Joshua. Joshua. It is the practice of Jewish rabbis to take one of their students and make him the lead student. That is called the hakam. It means lead talmid or student. And as a way to signify the special affection that is going to be needed because there will be special correction. They gave them a nickname. Do you know in here how many spies did Moses pick? Twelve. How many did he give a nickname? One. How many disciples did Jesus pick? Twelve. Let's read John <laughs> 1, 42. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which we, when translated is Peter. Can you see Peter as the Hakam, the lead disciple who was given a different name, shown special affection because he'd be corrected more than any other? I could teach about Peter as the Hakam a lot. In John 6, 68, I have a note in my Bible if you want to take a picture of it afterwards. Peter's mentioned 170-something times in the New York Testament. He is uh, the most celebrated and the most corrected individual in the Bible. And it's because rabbis generally didn't take more than 12 students because they didn't believe that they could turn more than 12 men at one time into what they were. And then of the 12, they took one who was usually a little older than the others, and they made them an example to the others. That was Joshua with Moses, and that was Peter with Jesus and it's easy to see and that's in a long line of rabbinic tradition that can be demonstrated through centuries okay so number four he was the hakam number five 
I wrote one of two. What does that mean? One of two. One of two that made it bad. Or that actually gave a good result. It's so much better than that. You just set them out two by two, set two out. That's still good, but this is so much better than that. I love this. I like to watch y'all your wheels turn. <laughs> so out of every single person that left Egypt, every single person that left Egypt, only two actually made it to the promise. Out of millions, Joshua was one of two men who inherited what was promised. One of two. And in his writings, he gives total preference to Caleb. He, he, he doesn't make, he treats Caleb like he's the only one who did it. Of course, Joshua was there and did it too. Kind of neat, huh? Okay, uh, number six. Uh, Frank, oh, you're asking a question. Yes. They were counting the men, like when they fed the men, when you fed the 5,000, and we take into effect that men and family of four or five, uh-huh. could it be the same to say that, that Joshua's family and Caleb's family? Yes. Yes, for sure. Caleb had daughters, for sure. The question is, when did he have them? You see what I'm saying? Because there's a 38-year, there's a 40-year gap, 38 from the time of unfaithfulness. So... If they had children during those 38 years, they would have had to have been below the age, this is complicated, below the age of 20 and not held responsible. So, But the point is, none who came out of Egypt entered into the promised land other than Joshua and Caleb. And we know that... Um, we know that Caleb would have been between 28 and, I'm sorry, 38 and 40 years old when they came out of Egypt. So if he had, and he did have kids, he had to have them after that. Um, Numbers 14.10. Who will read that one? Get it, Lou. Okay. One of only two faithful men out of millions. And what did every other Israelite want to do to them? Stone them. You hear messianic shadows there? Okay. Uh, The seventh is my favorite. So, uh, Spence, read uh, Exodus 17.9. So that doesn't sound uh, too profound, does it? Except it's the very first time (coughs) in which Joshua appears in all of the Bible. It's his very first mention. And you know what it is? God said to Moses, 
choose some men to go out and fight with Joshua. I'm sorry, Joshua will choose some men and go out and fight. He showed up, he arrives on the scene to defeat the enemies of God. You ever read 1 John 3 eight? The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work? Mm-hmm. See, Joshua and Jesus arrived to defeat sin on this planet. To purge it from evil. To take chosen men who would fight for the promises of God and get after it. They are men of action and faith, not men of silent contemplation and faith. I love him because the very first mention of him he is fighting, and that would be his function for the rest of his life. And get this, he's a type of Jesus. So if you picture Jesus as a strange white guy with a a lily white sheep hanging around his neck, you have a very incomplete view of Jesus. Because the Bible shows him with robes dipped in blood and a sharp double-edged sword in his hand, leading the armies of heaven against sinful humanity and demonic hordes and winning. Amen? Amen. I want to return to the concept of a day of reckoning. The concept of why Joshua is the first of the prophets and foreshadowing things to come. Okay? So to do that, we have to do a small history lesson. Mandy, you're going to read Genesis 15, uh, 12 through 16. Uh, let's go ahead and hand out a few. Uh, Libby, you take 1 Timothy 5, 24. Christy, Ezekiel 9, 9 through 10. Cassidy, uh, Acts 5, 9 through 10. Matthew, take Matthew 23, 31 through 32 and verse 35. Wade, take Revelation 18, 4 through 5. Buddy, take Daniel 8, 23 through 24. And if you didn't catch it, that's every major grouping of the word. Starting in Genesis 15. 16. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated four hundred years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Now look, it's so easy to read over these details. But if you really think about this, in Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believes God and it was credited to him as righteousness. In the first two verses of chapter 15, he saw a vision of the word of God. So he saw the bar Yahweh, the word of God. He gets born again, and then what is his great revelation? that his descendants are going to be enslaved and mistreated in a foreign land. Afterwards, four generations later, they would be brought out of that foreign land and into a good land that was flowing with milk and honey. And then there was a timetable attached to it. Did you hear what it was? Until the sin of the Amorites is full. He said, we're not doing it now because the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached 
its limit. In other words, God was aware that they were sinning. But in His mercy, not wanting any to perish, He was giving them more time. But there is a day coming when your time is up. And who shows up to deliver justice? Joshua did. Does that make sense? So why is it a book of prophecy? It's a book of prophecy because it is warning you that one day Joshua is coming and if your sin has reached its limit, he will reach you. That's the point. He's a man of appointment. Paul calls Jesus the same thing that Moses calls Joshua. He says God has, in, in Acts 17, God has appointed one man, judge of the living and dead. Moses says in Numbers 27, God, the man that you appointed, they're men of appointment as God's arm because sin has reached its full measure and he's done with it. Oh man, what a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Would you want to meet Joshua in an open battlefield? Okay, on that subject of sin, reaching its fullness, sin being a time clock, those kind of things, let's look at our next scripture. 1 Timothy 5.24 The sins of some men are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. Paul says this to Timothy. Have you ever wondered what one guy gets struck dead and another one goes on doing what he does and it doesn't seem fair? No, they will both come into contact with Jesus slash Joshua. It's just that you don't know always where they're at in the sin of the Amorites not yet full meter. See, God told Abraham, it's going to take four generations, but then I'm going to do this. Now, if you're the Amorite who hears from God, that's four generations of mercy to save others. If you're the Amorite that says, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, then you just use it to heap up judgment on yourself. But whether you understand, don't understand, sensitive, not sensitive, judgment is coming. That's the situation the whole world's in right now. Judgment is coming. The book says it, and we know that it will happen. How do we know that it will happen? Well, he said it to Abraham in Genesis 15, and Joshua carried it out before Joshua chapter 15. Okay? Carried it out. So when the Bible says that another day of reckoning is coming, we can know that it will because God has always kept His word. Does that make sense? Book of prophecy. A roadmap for the book of Revelation. Uh, Ezekiel. Ezekiel 9, 9 and 10. He answered me, The sin of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. The land is full of bloodshed, and the city is full of injustice. They say the Lord has forsaken the land, and the Lord does not see. So I will not look on them with pity, or spare them, but I will bring down on their own heads what they have done. God watches what's going on in that land. And not just that land, but the whole world. His eyes just, he calls the land the apple of his eye. And he will not spare unrepentant sin. He will not do it. It has a limit. We live in a time when they say that uh, grace is unlimited. That is not scriptural. If, if, if it really were unlimited, it wouldn't be grace. Um, mercy does not last forever. There is a day of reckoning coming. 
And when you read Joshua, if you don't read it as just some old historical work, uh, some cutesy book that you can pull uh, neat story illustrations out of for your sermon, but you read it as actually the Word of God, it's terrifying. I mean, it's been 400 years, but you might have only been born 10 years ago. It didn't matter. Does that make sense to you? It didn't matter. There is a day of reckoning coming on the world, and you don't know where people are at with their sin meter. So you better make haste in warning them now. Okay, how, how about Acts 5, 9 through 10? Talk about warning them now. Just in case you think the church is exempt. Peter said to her, How could you agree to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. Have mercy on her. She's a widow. No. At that moment she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her. No, that's the first youth ministry mentioned in the Bible? (laughs) (laughs) Carry out the dead old woman. We already got her husband out. There's a whole message there about church life, but... The point here is, this is after Pentecost. This is in the community that God formed. And their sin meter hit its max. And God said no. That's New Testament, friends. It's not an isolated incident. Read the book of Revelation. Listen to what God says to his churches. The book of Joshua stands as a testament for all time. This is a spiritual battle that will show up in living, breathing, walking battle. Okay? Um, let's take our next one. Matthew 23, 31 through 32, and verse 35. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up, then, the measure of sin of your forefathers. Verse 35. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth. Do you hear what Jesus is literally saying there? Fill it up. Fill it up. You just go ahead and keep stacking sin on sin because I'm going to pour out judgment on you as if you were the one that had shed every blood that had ever been shed. See, there are times that God delaying His judgment on someone is not a mercy. He's increasing the judgment upon them. There's a fat little store owner uh, in this town that should take serious note of that. Every day that he lives carrying on what he's doing, he is heaping coals upon his head for an eternity. Okay, uh, let's take our next one. Revelation 18, verses 4 and 5. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. For her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. So listen, I don't want to get all fatalistic with you. I want you to, I want you to have hope and think about this. There's a New Testament book of prophecy called Revelation. It is the only, so we can say it's the first in the Newer Testament, book of prophecy, right? And you hear what he says? Come out of her, my people. Come out of her so that you don't share in her sins, so that you don't have judgment on you like that. Now, in the first book of prophecy in the Older Testament... A woman does come out of Jericho. She does leave her sin. And hey, what happens to her? She gets grafted into the family line of Christ, just like us who have left spiritual Babylon. Come on. Yeah, no, I got it. I mean, it is a book of prophecy because it agrees with the books of prophecy. Okay. 
That's good. I feel like we should just like rest our case for a little while. But I'm not going to. Daniel 8. Daniel 8, 23 and 24. In the latter part of their reign, when rebels have become completely wicked, a stern-faced king, a master of intrigue, will arise. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy the mighty men and the holy people. That doesn't sound very encouraging, does it? God told Abraham, in the land that your people are going to go to, there are already inhabitants. When their sin reaches its fulfillment uh, is when we're going to have this conflict. Right? The book of Revelation tells us that when the earth's sin has reached its fulfillment, it will be manifested in an antichrist figure. He will oppose and exalt everything that is God. Jesus coming will destroy him, right? He is the manifestation of people's sin reaching its fullness. Joshua foreshadows that the people's sin had reached their fullness, and so God sent Joshua in to wipe them out. When this earth has reached its fullness, Jesus Christ will come and lay waste to nations. That's not taught in Christian theology, but it's taught throughout the Bible. It's taught from Genesis all the way through the book of Revelation. And it's important to know. When we say, hey, we just want you to accept Jesus so that you can go to heaven. That's so sad. You have so sold the gospel short. The truth is, is that there's an extraordinary judgment coming upon this world. And you will not stand, be able to endure that judgment unless Messiah speaks for you because you have his red cord hanging from the door of your house. You will not, any more than anybody could survive in Egypt without the blood of the Lamb on the door. Okay? The king of the kingdom is returning and he will purge wickedness from it. And these are not good people who just need to get saved. They're wicked, hateful, demonic sinners that are enemies of God. And they have to have a total transformation to be included in God's family. But if he did it with Rahab, he will do it with anyone, and I'm proof of that. You don't just get saved to go to heaven. That, that is so absurd. You get saved to build the kingdom of God on earth and avoid the destruction of this world. Okay? We, we have to grow up in our theology, and the best way to do that is to start at the beginning of the book. Okay? All right. Uh, the point of Daniel 8 was that sin causes the rise of the Antichrist. Let's do this just for fun. Um, let's take Brenton, Leviticus 18, verses 24 through 25. Anybody in here in the Acts 2 class? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Might pay careful attention to this first. <laughs> Do not defile yourselves by any of these things, for by all of these the nations which I am casting out before you have become defiled. For the land has become defiled. Therefore I have brought its punishment upon it, so that the land has spewed out its inhabitants. Spewed out. Spewed out. Puked. Yeah, projectile. <laughs> <laughs> Vomited. 
Now, while you're thinking about that, what Leviticus 18 is warning against is if you get into the land and do the same thing that the people in the land have been doing, even though you were covered under the blood of the Lamb, even though you were fed by manna, even though you seem to have inherited what was promised, I will do the same thing to you that you were doing to them. That is a warning for the body of Christ. We cannot do the things that the world does and be okay. It will never be okay. Now, secondly, what other vomit scripture do you know in the Bible? I wish that you were either hot or cold because you're neither. I want to vomit you. When God pukes, do you know what it looks like? It looks like Joshua showing up and killing you. That's what it looks like. Because the lamb didn't vomit them. That's what he says. But the lamb vomiting them, what did that look like? Joshua showing up and putting a sword to him. You want to know what happens to the lukewarm? Jesus returns and he puts the sword to them. Okay. I, I know that this is not your grandma's Sunday school class. It's not what you're used to hearing, but it is what the book of Revelation is about, and it is what the book of Joshua is about. Because they're actually God-haters. If they loved God, they would do what he does. But they love wickedness, and so wicked deeds are what they did. Yeah, you know, in this room, that ought to cause kind of a a puckery. I mean, it ought to. I mean, you, you, you ought to be concerned. He is not the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man. He is the commander of God's armies. Okay? And when you recognize that, you're all the more grateful to be spared and included. But it is a serious thing. Now, let's get to some fun stuff. Is that okay? I'm having fun. I'm having fun too. I want to show you uh, an overview of the book of Joshua, and then then we're going to, because it's 9 o'clock. After the overview of the book of Joshua, I'm going to take you through a very practical application. And uh, if you don't leave encouraged, you don't leave ready to do something, you don't leave fired up, then you're probably in the puking category. So so I'm just warning you now, okay? Let's take the most important verse in the book of Joshua. Can I give that away uh, in the introduction? Okay, Andrew, you're going to read it. It'll be Joshua, the first chapter. You can write it after you read it, man. Joshua, the first chapter, verse 8. Joshua 1.8. Yeah, read it. Read it like your beard's starting to grow again. (laughs) Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Don't let the, the word ever depart from your mouth. Not at daytime, not at nighttime. The word is everything. Say the word is everything. The word is everything. Okay, now watch this. The book of Joshua can be summarized. Chapters 1 through 5. Entering the battle for the land. Chapter 6 through 12, overcoming the enemy. Chapters 13 through 24, occupying the land. So Joshua is a book that is about the victory of a faith that is in action. A man who is 
meditating on God's word, listening for God's voice, and doing what he says. That's an amazing thing. And Joshua 1.8 gives us the key to every victory. It's the key to prosperity, spiritually and otherwise. Read it again. Joshua 1.8 Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on, meditate on it day and night. What is, the, what is the battle plan for going into the land? It's the Word of God. What, what is the scheme? It's the Word of God. What is the military tactic? It's the Word of God. Every battle that Joshua loses, he loses because he did not inquire of God. Every battle that he wins, he wins because he went after it with the Word of God. And you know what? There were no draws. There were no stalemates. Now, here's where the big thing comes. Okay? I mean, huge. So, Like the wall we're going to build. Huge. Okay? The most important thing to pick up from this overview is Joshua's attitude. He defeats the world at Jericho, leaning only on the Lord. No weapons. He saves the Gentile graftins like Rahab. He fights for and completes God's promise inheritance to Israel and allots the land. He is the desire of Moses' law fulfilled. And he does all of that Simply by trusting in the Word of God. But I still haven't told you his attitude. I just told you his deeds. Let me explain his attitude. The book of Joshua is an active, victorious, on the offensive life of faith. The book of Joshua takes the Word of God and puts it into action every day in a life or death struggle in which there can be no tie. You either win or you lose. There's no room for apathy. They are there to dispossess the wicked. Now, I want you to contrast this with the kind of prisoner of war faith that we seem to have. I'm under attack all of the time. A good day is a day that I just don't sin. You pathetic captive. You are not supposed to be hiding, hoping not to sin. That's a prisoner of war. You are supposed to be active, storming the enemy's camp, not hiding in yours, hoping he doesn't bite you. We are not ferrets that are sticking our head out of the hole looking for what eats us today. We are the lion on the prowl looking for whom we might drive out of the land because it belongs to us. The attitude of Joshua is the way that you win today. You don't have time to sin when you are working. You have time to sin when you are protecting what you have. I want to show you that the attitude of Joshua is absolutely firmly embedded in every area of the New Testament. And I have to do it quickly. Okay? So, JJ, read Matthew 16 in verse 18. And then let's make an observation about it. Matthew 16, verse 
18. Nobody in the room should be reading that screen. You should be thinking very hard about what he says. Because if you read an answer on the screen and that's how you derive the answer to this question, then you didn't exactly get it from listening to the Word of God and getting a revelation. And I'm telling you, if you could get the revelation he's about to read to you, your life would improve times ten tomorrow, immediately, right away. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Hey, gates of Hades will not overcome it. You've watched all of the movies, right? We, we've got, uh, uh, let's just call this our castle, and then there's some kind of moat around it, and there's a bridge that goes like this, right? Does that castle chase down armies? Do the gates of that castle chase the army? What is the gate there for? To keep the army out. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church of God. We are on the offensive. We are not playing defense. We are storming the gates of hell and they cannot stand to us. That is not somebody who sits back and waits to see what the devil's going to do to them. That is somebody who is hunting down the enemies of God, rescuing the weak, and killing the enemy of God. See, this is why Jesus' words are go and our words are come. He wanted us on the offense and we are playing defense. His promise that began the church was that hell would be on the defensive and you would be on the offense and hell couldn't stand up to you. It is the same promise in the book of Joshua. First chapter, I will give you every place you set your foot. Get after it. Go. The only thing you have to do is keep the word of God in your heart, mind, mouth, day and night, and you will win everywhere you go. There's nobody who can stand up to you. And it was true then, and it's true today. But if he sits on the wrong side of the Jordan and says, I hope the enemy doesn't get me, I hope he doesn't get me, it's a good day because he didn't get me, he's not even living. And now you've found the difference between Christians who are alive and those who think they're alive. When you woke up today, did you set out to accomplish something for the kingdom? To take territory from the enemy? Or did you wake up today just hoping not to offend God in some way? The verse that you quoted as the main verse for the book of Joshua, Joshua 1.8, talks about meditating on God's word. When you look up the word meditate, I happened to look at it earlier, so I pulled it up on Blue Letter Bible. It says to moan to growl, to utter, to muse. The idea of meditating here is not a passivity that we're just, we're just in some yoga-like pose thinking upon the things of the Lord. We are growling on the inside because His Word is enlivening us. He, we are growling. We are ready to take. We're like a snarling lion ready to be released. That's what meditating on God's Word is. If we can develop this attitude, we will get Joshua's results in seven years. Every Israelite had their inheritance. Oh man, we've had 2,000 years and we're still on the defense. Poor us, attack. Poor us, we don't have. Poor us, the world's against us. Man, if we had the attitude of Joshua, what would we accomplish? Luke 16, 16. JJ, will you read them? Luke 
16. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it. See, everyone is forcing their way into it. There's no defense. There's no sitting back hoping just to receive. What you're supposed to actually be doing is taking the revelation you have received and going to work, going to battle, taking it to the enemy, knowing he's no match for you. I don't know what to think about this scared attitude. Like, we need to learn spiritual warfare because, oh, come on, you are the apex predator in the spiritual ocean. You just don't know it. I'm telling you, with all confidence, we can walk into any nation in the world, preach the message that is the Bible message, and steal captives right away from the fears. Do it right under the nose of ISIS, right under the nose of secular military. We can do it anywhere. Do you know how I know that? This is how we live. I am not waking up each day waiting for something to come and eat me. Okay, I'm not. Each day I am looking for something to step on for Jesus. And the only times I ever struggle significantly spiritually is when somehow or another I get tricked into not knowing who to step on next. Because we are supposed to be in a stage of Christian conquest. Not a stage of protectionism, retreat, isolation. That is all sin. If we could pick up Joshua's attitude, then what 1 John 5, 4 says would be true of us. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. How many overcome the world? Everybody. Everyone born of God. Everybody born of God. Overcome the world. How do we do it? Even our faith. Joshua trusted God, kept the word of God in his sights, and he went out with the sword and took what God said he was giving him as a gift. Man, man, man. What God says he was giving him as a gift. Joshua, the first chapter we're going to cover next week, in the third verse, sixth verse, 11th verse, 13th verse, and 15th verse. Do you know what he says about the land? Five times in the first chapter. I'm giving it to you. 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 Take it. You know what the Spirit is saying to you today? I'm giving it to you. I'm giving it to you. I'm giving it to you. I'm giving. Take it. You have to get on the offense. We're going to close here. I want to show you a map of the land. I'm going to cover in the weeks to come the uh, giant nations that were in the land, the seven nations that were dispossessed, where they come from, how they relate to Nephilim. We're going to cover signs in the heavens, names of kings. Uh, If we don't blow your mind in the next five weeks, then, you know, you might be Mormon. But, (laughs) But we're going to do our job. Question is, are you going to get on the offense? Yes. This is what the Royal Land Grant is actually supposed to look like. It's in green. I outlined in red what Israel now occupies. And the truth is, the rivers are set in stone. The oceans are set in stone. There are some other boundaries that are hard to figure out. This might be too conservative. 
But as best as I can tell, uh, this is the royal land grant. Now, I love the book of Joshua, but it is incomplete in this regard. While every tribe got an inheritance, they did not possess all that God said they would possess. They stopped short. In Solomon's time, the kingdom was bigger than it had ever been, and they still didn't possess all God said. Israel has never at any time possessed the boundary lines that God told Abraham they would possess or that Ezekiel says they will possess. Never. Not not at any time. It seems that we're used to say, I've gone a respectable distance in the eyes of my friends. It'll be okay. Instead of going after all that could be ours. I don't want to read about Smith Wigglesworth anymore. I love him. I'm excited for him. But he's dead. Actually, he's alive, more alive than you are. But I want to do the things that I was born to do. You know how that happens? You stretch out and try. You go on the offensive. Amen? The man who is at war is not going to stop and play with dogs. Because you're at war. You know, half of the sin problems in our church are because people are not at war. Okay? Pick a fight with the devil. Stomp on his head. Go win. Go win. Everywhere you put your foot, he will give you victory. Read Joshua 1.8 again, Andrew. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. You ever read Romans 8.37? You are more than conquerors. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors. Come on. Can you read that and say, I'm more than a conqueror and and not be so ashamed of of the hypocrisy? Let's be more than conquerors. You know, it doesn't have to be a missions trip. Every day can be a missions trip. Every time you go to Walmart, every time you, you know what? I I love that our children can cast out demons. I love it. I love that our crazy badger team can walk right up to muscle-bound weightlifters in foreign countries in an airport and just put it on them. Watch the guy squirming away from our kids and one of them look at him with a word of knowledge and say, yeah, but you're sleeping with your girlfriend, aren't you? Oh, how did you know that? Well, Jesus speaks to me, you know? I mean, you have no idea what you're capable of because you haven't been pushed to try, right? We've been taught to sit, to soak, and to pay for others to pray. And it, it's, it's wrong. It's wrong. We need you to take the attitude of Joshua. We need them. Not just because some are leaving. Why wait till they leave? I mean, we need that. It is time to grab the victory that is yours in Christ. The book of Joshua teaches us to do that and warns us of the consequence of not doing it. Okay? Stand up. Fight. You can win. God formed our church so that we could teach you these things. It's taken years to build a platform of knowledge that you would begin to understand the things that I shared with you tonight. It's taken years to do that. But you got it. And we're going to go further. But we don't want our level of education to outpace our level of obedience. So let's get to work. Stand up.